Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. You can learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us on Sunday mornings at El Dorado High School in the Performing Arts Center at 9 and 11 a.m. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hello, everybody. Come on in. Hey, my name is Mike. Welcome. We're glad that you are here, particularly if you were here relatively on time. Well done. Well done. Uh, because, I mean, all of the... Hello, Timothy. Great to see you, dude. It's my friend, Tim. Say hi, Tim. Uh, in fact, why don't you all just say your name right now, all right, so we get to know each other. Ready? One, two, three. You are? Yeah. Nice to meet you. So glad you're here. A uh, couple of things uh, before we get started. Uh, this is a church, believe it or not, uh, and the name is Vox, and Vox stands, it's Latin for voice, uh, because things are cooler in Latin, right? Voice church just doesn't sound cool. Vox Church, that sounds way, way better. Um, and there is a competition named The Voice. So we just want to compete with that. Because uh, people mistake me for Adam Levine all the time. And so it's a, it's a tough thing I've had to live with. Um, if you want to find out more about us, if this is your first time with us, you can go to voxoc.com and uh, find out a little more. We've got something called a new to Vox dinner coming up at our house. Uh, I think it is next Wednesday night. You can sign up there. And also, we have a kind of a big announcement. We don't do n- announcements normally. But we are launching something in March. For March, April, and May, uh, they're called table fellowships. And that's a very churchy word, but it is, uh, it, it is a way that people describe one of the most distinctive things about Jesus, is that Jesus would eat meals with all kinds of people. And, um, and so there, there are loads of churches well, with small groups and life groups, and, and, and so if, you, if you're interested in those things, there are lots of those out there. We wanted to do something a little different, and, um, and so we, we have just kind of a boring, I'm going to read you some slides, presentation about what these things are, because we're going to start taking sign-ups on these. So uh, go ahead and fire up Table Fellowship so you can start RSVPing next week. You can read more about it online, or there'll be flyers out on the tables. Next slide. So... We, the center of our gathering is not the teaching, it's not the worship, it's not the story. The center of our gathering is the Eucharist. And so we think that, that we think kitchen tables can change the world. We just, we, we think it's not just the Lord's table, but it's how the Lord's table and God's hospitality work itself out into our lives and our communities that's so significant. So we think it's, uh, we think the Eucharist is a beautiful symbol of Jesus' sacrifice um, and invitation of association. We extend its uh, symbolism to table fellowships as a reminder that Jesus had no hesitation to eat and drink with anyone next. Table fellowship here uh, is going to be expressed in three different ways. Number one, uh, on Sunday mornings, corporately, we publicly gather to worship and observe the Eucharist together. Number two, the community table. Now, this is, this is what we're going to call table fellowships. These are, these are folks in our community who open their homes for Vox community attenders and their friends. Okay, next. But ultimately, we want you to open up your dining room table to your friends, to your neighbors, to the people on the soccer team, to the people at school. So there are three levels. The first level is corporate, what we do Sunday. Second level is uh, Vox people opening up their homes to other Vox people, but the third level and the level that we see kind of is most needed is the level where people get captured by this and open their homes to other people who aren't necessarily Jesus followers. Next. So community table fellowships, next. This is very important. They're hosted by Vox team members selected for their excellent hospitality. These are socially engaging people. So we love, we love, we love introverts. But if you're an introvert and you love hiding out in a corner with one person, we're not gonna invite you to host a table fellowship of like 30 people, okay? We're just not gonna do that to you for your sake and for our sake. Uh, We want people that reflect a stable spirit that makes room for all people in process because we have all kinds of folks here. We're not, so when you walk in, we want it to be as safe to belong there as it is here. Next. 
Um, community table fellowships will reflect the core values of Vox, right? It's a place to talk about anything. We always serve our guests first, and we seek to engage the next generation next. These are a shared meal and conversational experience, and that's Andy language. I just would say it's food. Andy's like, no, 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 it's a shared meal and conversational experience. What this means is there's no other agenda outside of eating and talking. Like, you know what people used to do before they had phones and before you just went into your garage, into your house, when people knew each other. We learn more about each other and explore new friendships over a meal together. Next. These are not Bible studies. These are not small groups. These are not curriculum-based experiences. Do you understand this? Okay. These are meals where you eat to, why are you clapping? I love, I love it. I love it. All right. We have enough Bible studies. All right. We, we want to start living the Bible we study. Correct? This is one of the ways we do this. Now, this is Andy's language right here. It's an homage to a former era where new friends and neighbors eating together represented relief service and communal care. And what's Andy know about a former era? The dude's like 32, right? He doesn't know much. Next. So these are gatherings designed to host 20 or 30 people. Children are included. And our desire is for some of you, as you engage in these things, to decide to open up your own home in the same way to your sphere of influence. All right, make sense? These are going to kick off in March, April, and May. We'll do two a month, different locations around Orange County. Over the summer, then, we'll invite everybody to open their home one time over the summer to people that you don't necessarily know, and then we'll do them again in the fall. Make sense? Let's do some questions, brothers and sisters. If we are big fans of doubters, skeptics, and so we, uh, we have texted in questions all the time. That's the phone number. So uh, we have like 13 to get through. I will probably make it through six. How do you stay motivated to look for God even when it feels like you have an uh, unfilled relationship? That's a great question. First, and my only answer uh, is, is simply this. How do you stay motivated to look for God when the relationship you have with God is unfulfilling? You do it honestly. In other words, I, I come across too many Jesus followers or God believers who are afraid to go to God and say, God, I'm really bummed at like, how little you're engaging with me right now. I'm really bummed that you seem so silent right now. I'm really disappointed in you because it, it doesn't feel like you're keeping up your end of the bargain. And so I would encourage you to read a bunch of the Psalms. There are lament Psalms where people are literally bringing their complaints before God. It's actually a form of worship because it's directed to God, not at God. And so I would encourage you, I, I think we've all, if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, you go through something uh, that we called, on a recent podcast, we called it disorientation, where it just seems like it's dry and it seems like it's just joyless. And we talked a bit about what you do in the middle of that. I'd encourage you to check that out. But truly, the best answer I can give you is to be honest to God with this disappointment you have in him. He's big enough to handle it. Next. Why is Coors Light the holiest drink? Okay, um, I'm a fan of Coors Light, I'm not gonna lie. Um, and I'm glad we're talking about this in church. These are really important issues. <laughs> Where did God meet with Moses? On a mountain. Where did Jesus, where was Jesus transfigured? On a mountain. Where's Coors Light made? Rocky Mountains, <laughs> done. All right, next. Jesus warned us about prof false prophets, and 600 years later, Muhammad shows up. Allah does not have a son named Jesus. Islam makes that clear. Islam did not spread from Mecca via community outreach and bake sales. This is indisputable. When dealing with Islamic immigrants, why did you choose the Good Samaritan story last week? Versus the warning in 2 John, what duty do Christians have to let wolves into the sheepfold? So 2 John is the warning about false teachers. And it's interesting, in 2 John, the false teachers are clearly people who claim to be Christians but pervert the gospel. This is interesting to me because the, the reason I chose the parable of the Good Samaritan is exactly 
exactly and precisely because the teacher of the law would have regarded the, the Samaritan as a false teacher, and the Samaritan would have regarded the teacher of the law as a false teacher. In fact, you could not find a more perfect example to illustrate the point that hospitality looks like loving your enemy. So I, I think you've missed the point of the parable entirely, if I might gently say so. Next. Oh, this is awesome. Let us know when you want to FaceTime anytime before Super Bowl is good. Whoops, sorry about that. This text was meant for my son and daughter-in-law. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Where is God from? I know there are things as Christians that we have to just believe because the Bible says so. But I'm a curious guy and I need more than that. All right, well, the Bible says, now one of the interesting things is when Moses asks the name of God in the Old Testament, right? You remember this in Exodus 3. God gives him the name, I am. And and that's it, or I am who I am, or I will be what I will be. And in Hebrew, it's this interesting, it's this interesting, it kind of drops in the middle of the Hebrew language from what I understand, because it comes from the root word to exist. In other words, when God describes himself to Moses, here's the name he gives Moses. I'm real. I exist. I am sufficiency. In other words, I don't count on anything else for my existence. Everything else counts on something else for its existence. So yes, the Bible does present the God of the Hebrew scriptures as an uncaused cause, an unmoved mover. And philosophically, this makes sense. Because if you have, now let me just get into some quick philosophy curious guy. If you have an infinite number of causes that stretch back into infinity, it is impossible to ever reach the present point if, if there's an infinite distance that way. So there has to be something that started it that could not be a part of whatever it was that started it. It had to be beyond it or outside it. So the idea is that there had to be something. So Thomas Aquinas, unmoved mover, first cause, something that began the whole chain of existence that bring us to present day. I know, not a great answer, but what can I do with that one in 30 seconds? Next. Very impactful sermon. Thank you. All right, you're welcome. Any idea what the best organizations to donate for helping refugees are? Uh, World Relief. There's an office in Garden Grove that I'm learning about. I would encourage you to donate there. Is it better to donate to the most effective organization, even if it's secular, or should it be given to a Christian organization so that our gift is associated with Jesus? What do you think? I could see both sides of that, right? But I would say, um, as people who want to see work done well, I would give to the best organizations regardless of whether or not they claim the name of Jesus. Because just because an organization claims the name of Jesus doesn't mean they're good at what they do. You know what I'm saying? Sorry. I, I know that's shocking. All right, one more. Does love your enemy make protesting misguided? That's a great question. No, as long as you're not demonizing the enemy you're protesting. In fact, one of the ways we can demonstrate love of neighbor is by protesting on their behalf, correct? But... The, the problem with, for me, and I don't know if it's true for you, I can hardly protest something without demonizing the people who are affirming it on the other side. And that's where we find ourselves, right? So whether you're for Trump or against Trump, you're demonized for speaking out in any direction. I mean, it's absolutely ludicrous. We, we can no longer have conversations about any of these things anymore. It's crazy. Jesus, take the wheel. All right, now. What was the next one? Is the next one a quick one? No, they're not donuts on the communion table. Come on. Nine? All right, we're going to come back to that one. I, don't, I can't do that in 30 seconds. All right, we'll do that one another time. Here we go. Instead of same-sex marriage, let's talk about hell. Shall we? Let's go to the book of... Let's go... The book of James. All right, 
Um, and I'm not dodging it. We talk about, if you listen to the podcast, we talk about LGBTQ issues all the time. I just want to do it justice, and I'm already three minutes over. And we're talking about hell today. So, hello. All right. We've been stuck for months on this word, perish. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish. And we've been contrasting next two diagrams, of course. The story that many of us were told, you live on earth, you die, you face judgment, you spend forever in heaven or spend forever in hell. The biblical story is much uh, more beautiful than that. Next, it's about the creation of the heavens and the earth. Creaturely and angelic rebellion leads to some sort of rupture and disunity between the two, resulting in the need for judgment so that heaven and earth can then be reconciled, all right? And that includes, of course, people. We've been camping forever on the word judgment. So we've talked about the why, why does God have to judge, how God judges, who he judges. You can tune into all those things because all of this builds. And I know, I know you have a deep remembrance and appreciation for everything we talk about on Sunday mornings. You never forget it. And I know you're just trucking all that information here just at the tip of your tongue, correct? False. All right, now, this is going to feel like a lecture. This is going to feel very seminary-ish. I just have no choice but to pound through, I think it's like 30 scriptures. All right? But I hope at the end of it, there's a bit, a bit of um, a reframing of what God is like at the end, okay? So it's worth it. First point. Hell in the Bible is both a power that exists presently and a destination. It's a place. So in James, James speaks of hell as a power that animates things in, uh, in the world. So for instance, verse uh, six of James chapter three, the tongue, so how you speak, also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body, it corrupts the whole body, sets the, the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. So James is, whatever hell is, one of the ways hell has power into the world is through the way people talk to each other. And would we agree with that? Absolutely. In fact, Jesus speaks of hell more than anybody else in the New Testament, and he associates it, associates it with lust, violence, and hypocrisy as things that unleash hell into the world. And we would all agree, right? There are such things as hell on earth. So it's fascinating, we don't have time to develop this point, but it's fascinating that James here speaks of hell being something that energizes or, or that human beings open doors from and into, right? So, so somehow the, the, the power of hell energizes the way that we talk to each other, and that power then is unleashed into the world. It's a fascinating conversation. But what I want to I talk about instead is the destination, this place that is called hell. And to do that, we're going to start in the book of Genesis, as we do. So Genesis chapter 3, this will all be on the slides if I lose you. I have to fly through this stuff. Genesis chapter 3, I'm in Exodus chapter 3, not helpful, even remotely. Genesis, go to page 1, there we go, go to page 4, there it is, Genesis 3, verse 23, what does God do when the first humans rebel? It says, verse 23, so the Lord God banished the man and the woman from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubims, uh, angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So what does God do when Adam and Eve sin? What's he do? He banishes them. Is he torturing them? No. But... As a, as, as a condition for their obedience, right? In their disobedience, he banishes them, and, and there's this whole tree of life thing that they won't live forever in their fallen state kind of thing. But the, but the punishment was banishment. It was exile. What does God do with Israel when Israel disobeys? The exact same thing. Go to 2 Kings. 
A very popular book, 2 Kings, only topped by our devotion to 1 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 17. Man, this is a lot. Okay, but this describes what God does to Israel in response to Israel's continued sin in the promised land. So verse seven, all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord, their God who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshiped other gods, they followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. They secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right, and then literally there's a catalog of their sins. Jump down to verse uh, 18. So the Lord was very angry with Israel, and then what's the next phrase? Nope, go to seven, verse 17. Verse 18, sorry. There we go. It's hard for you to follow along. So the Lord was very angry with them and did what? Removed them from his presence, right? Only the tribe of Judah was left, and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. Therefore, verse 20, the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence, right? Or put the next uh, Second Kings passage up there, uh, verse 24. He carried all Jerusalem into what? Exile. So what's God do when Adam and Eve sin? Banishes them exiles them from the garden, correct? What's he do with Israel? Banishes them, he exiles them. Now, here comes Jesus of Nazareth. Go to Matthew chapter five. Jesus has got, a quite, he's got quite a bit to say on the topic. Matthew chapter five, verse 22. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. All right. Jesus uses the word hell. I think it's used 12 times in the New Testament, and 11 of those are on the list on the lips of Jesus. So let's go through them real quick. So um, next slide. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in two. Next. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both the, the body, the soul and body in and if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of as you are. You snakes, you children of snakes. How will you escape being condemned to? If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed with two hands than to go into Well, the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better you enter crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes be thrown into. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into. Next. I think that was the last one. Oh, hallelujah. All right, so there it is. Now, the word that Jesus uses for hell is a very interesting word. Many of you know it's the word Gehenna, which is a transliteration. Uh, Geh means valley, and Henna is a transliteration of Hinnom. So it literally is a reference to an actual valley called the Valley of Hinnom. And it, it actually is in 
uh, Israel today. It is right outside the walls of the city. Here's a picture. It doesn't look evil, does it? <laughs> Next. That valley. So there are two valleys that meet at that point, right up there, the Kidron Valley and the Valley of Hinnom. Now, when Jesus uses the phrase Gehenna, he is referencing something unbelievably specific. So give me 10 minutes of painful background, all right? This, man, this is so important. Whew, you gotta get this. The Valley of Hinnom had a horrible reputation in the Old Testament, okay? There were evil things that were done there. Let's catalog a few, okay? Joshua just tells us that uh, the, the Valley of Ben-Hinnom ran along the southern slope of the city that is Jerusalem. It was outside the city. That becomes an important point later. Next. Ahaz, 20 years old. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and made idols for worshiping the Baals, the Canaanite gods. He burned sacrifices in the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. Now, Ben is just son of, so it's still referencing the same valley. So this, you could call it the Valley of Hinnom or the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. It's the same valley. He burned sacrifices in the valley and sacrificed what? His children in the what? In the fire. Oh, that's interesting. Next. Manasseh, different king, was 12 years old. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations. Next. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished, erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. These were poles that you would worship the god Asherah. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshiped them. He built altars in the temple in Jerusalem to these false gods. Next. Verse six, he sacrificed his children in the fire of the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens, consulted, he did much evil in the eyes of the Lord. Next. Now Jeremiah shows up and God is unhappy with how this thing is going. And so through the prophet Jeremiah, the people of Judah have done evil in my eyes They've set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name. They have built the high places of Tophet in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn. So Tophet was a part of the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Tophet in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons next and daughters in the fire. Tophet literally comes from a Hebrew word that means to burn. So beware, the days are coming when the people will no longer call it Tophet or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but instead they'll call it what? The Valley of Slaughter. Why? Because the people of Judea will bury the dead in Tophet until there's no more room. In other words, I'm going to judge this so that instead of burning your children, you yourselves will be buried there. Next. Isn't this fun? <sighs> So it's the, later he says the same thing, it's gonna be called the Valley of Slaughter. In this place, I will ruin the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. I will make them fall by the sword before their enemies. So this is a prophecy about what? The destruction of the city by Babylon, okay? And the exile of the southern kingdom. I will devastate this city, make it an object of horror and scorn. All who pass by will scoff because of all its wounds. Next. Oh, yeah, this is awful. Go to verse 10. Yeah, let's skip, let's skip nine. You can email Andy about verse nine. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will smash this next Nation in this city, just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired, they will bury the dead in Tophet until there's no more room. I will make this city like Tophet. In other words, the very destruction uh, that the people had been you know, engaging in in terms of their children now will be given to Israel itself. Okay, so here comes Jesus. And 11 times, he uses the image of Gehenna. What's that image? Well, it's an image of two things from the Old Testament, right? 
It's the image of idolatry and, and it's the image of injustice. The image of idolatry is they went to worship false gods, correct? Correct? And it's the image of injustice. They went and burned their children to the idols they were worshiping. What are the two greatest commandments? Love God, love neighbor, violated both in this place. What was the fire? Well, the fire was set by the people to offer devotion to these lifeless deities, right? So when Jesus talks about hell, he's not talking about a place underground. He's not talking about a cosmic torture chamber. Do you understand this? He's talking about something very specific that happened. And, and there are three things we learn about it. Three associations with this. I mean, this blows me away. He's not just talking about Dante's Inferno, where devils are like, like torturing people and God is up there saying, yes, they're getting what they deserve. I mean, this is not, this is so far from the image that's being presented by Jesus. What did Gehenna represent? The place where disobedience and rebellion went outside the city. So three quick associations with this. Number one, Gehenna shows the evil nature of idols. In other words, remember we talked about several weeks ago, I know you all remember because you all treasure these. Remember we talked about the idea that, that God's wrath is at times expressed in, in us, in him giving us over. Remember that? He lets us have what we want. See, the, there's this deep teaching in the scriptures that you become like whatever it is that you worship. And so the gods, once you start worshiping the false gods, what do they do? Do they, do they just settle for a bit of allegiance? No, they always want more. Right? If you worship money, how much money is enough? If you worship sex, how much sex is enough? If you worship power, how much power is enough? They always want more. And so Gehenna is the place where the idols are shown for the cruel taskmasters that they are. And the consequence of being in Gehenna is that you're actually living out the giving overness that is the wrath of God being poured out on you, correct? When you're burning your kids, you've gone a bit too far down the road, right? So Gehenna was the place where the idols were exposed, not as things that gave relief, but as things that enslaved human people. Second thing about Gehenna, who lit the fires? Did God light the fires? No, the fires were lit by human hands. The fires were lit by God's people. That's interesting. And the third thing, and the most important thing about Gehenna, where was it? It was outside the city. Go to the book of Revelation. Or, as some call it, Revelations. Oh, put up some banishment slides real quick. Jesus uses this image of banishment all over the place. Real quick before we go to Revelation. So think, think about this in terms of outside the city. Think about this in terms of Israel getting exiled out of the promised land. Think about this in terms of Adam and Eve exiled from the garden, right? So here are the images that Jesus has used for judgment. Away from me, you evildoers. Thrown outside into the darkness. Throw him outside into the darkness. Next. I don't know you. Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness. Depart from me into the eternal fire. Next. I don't know you. Away from me. They will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. What is hell? Exile. From what? Presence of God. It's not a cosmic torture chamber. It's outside the city. Why is it outside the city? Oh, revelations. It's really revelation, but you know. Why ruin a good... Oh, I got five minutes to wrap this up. Now we're going to talk about what happens there next week. All right? Because that's the big question. That's the big question. No, not actually two weeks. You can't handle two weeks in a row of this. Oh my goodness. Revelation 21. 
Verse 22. John describing, remember, the image is of heaven coming down to earth. God dwelling in what? Do you remember what comes down? Do you remember? A new Jerusalem, the holy city. Okay? So that's the image. I did not see a temple in that city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The Lamb's a reference to Jesus. City did not need sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it its light and the Lamb will be its lamp. Verse 25, on no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Verse 27, then notice this. Nothing impure will enter that city nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those names whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now that's a conversation for another day. Notice chapter 22. Look at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go into the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone else who loves and practices falsehood. So what's the image? There's an eternal city coming down out of heaven, reunited with earth, and where's all the sin, the evil? It's outside of it. So, couple of big thoughts. What is hell? It's banishment, exile, separation. Thank you, Kelly. Oh, who chimed in separation? Nice job, Mama. Right? Hell is not God torturing people. Why is there separation and banishment? Well, in order for God's world to flourish, Evil must be kept at bay, correct? Because one of the things the scripture teaches about evil is that it's parasitic. It corrupts, it divides, it devours. It's never satisfied. It always wants more. And if you're going to remake the new heavens and the new earth, see Jerusalem, the word is Yerushalam. Yet, it was, the name means the shalom of God. Jerusalem, the earthly city, was to be the place where the shalom of God was present. The new Jerusalem is that place. And what God does, it's like he has this boundary around it that prevents evil from getting in. That's mercy. It's, it's like we, we've used this analogy before. How in the world, if you want something to flourish, do you allow, if you have the opportunity to eradicate the cancer in your child, do you leave a few cells here and there? No, you eradicate it. You get it outside the body, you're done with it, correct? So the judgment that's coming is good news. Why? Because it is God's purging of all that is evil and all that is wrong and all that is diseased and, and all of the suffering, the fears, the tears, the guilt, the shame, all of that, that goes somewhere. Where does it go? It goes outside the city. and will not be allowed back in. We have this image of a God, and, and, and forgive me if I step on a few toes, we, there are some who teach that God sits up there and decides arbitrarily who from the foundation of the earth is going to go to heaven and who from the foundation of the earth is going to go to hell. And hell, we're told, is a place where people are tortured forever to show the justice and glory of God. And that some people insist that part of the joy of the martyred saints is the watching of the unrepentant being tortured. This is not the God revealed in Christ. What Jesus teaches about hell is simply this. We're going to get rid of the cancer, and it will never come back. The problem is, you and I are part of the cancer. And so the reason Jesus is calling people into his movement, the reason Christians are always talking about being saved and being forgiven and being reconciled is because part of the cancer's in us. 
And if we're to enter the city, that has to be purged from us too. So why does Jesus invite people to come into eternal life? Well, he's simply saying, come on in. That's the invitation. Come on in. There's this thing we're going to do forever, and you're really going to want to be a part of it. But to do that, you can't bring any of the junk in with you. The stuff done to us, the stuff we've done. And so Jesus is put forward as God's own son out of love to take the brunt, to remove the sting, to bring cleansing so that we're now fitted for the city to come. Are you with me on this point? And so what is hell? We'll talk about what happens there. But what is it? Well, it turns out to be a boundary of mercy for those in the city cannot be touched again by the evil that's outside it. Jesus is far better, and the Father he reveals is far better than so much of our theology gives him credit for. Hell is not torture. Hell is containment. So, I think that's enough to chew on, don't you? Feel free to disagree. Feel free to text in. Next week, we have a, a young lady named Carrie. You're going to love her. We just took whatever date she had free. She's been over here whooping and yelling. If you've uh, a couple of services, she's amazing. And then the next week, we're going to talk about, all right, so is everyone saved? Does God annihilate people, or does he torture them eternally? It'll be glorious. And then finally, we shall be done with perish. Okay. All right, I'm only two minutes over. Here's what I want you to do. And I know if you have never trusted in Messiah Jesus, I simply cannot urge you to consider opening up your life to him. Not because we're afraid. I mean, hell has been used to manipulate people. How, how, how are people, if the greatest command is to love God, how do you love a God who you ran to because you were afraid of going to hell? My prayer for us this morning and for me was just that we would wake up. Like, so many of us sleepwalk through life. And there's something happening that's so far, so much bigger than just punching the clock and raising our kids and getting through school. And we're invited to be part. So wake up. So let me pray. Father, this is heavy stuff. This is not stuff we talk a lot about. But I, um, I pray that it would produce in me a reverence, a, um, a holy fear, not of punishment or not of condemnation, but just a healthy and deep respect for the work of purging the world of evil and recognizing my part in the evil that needs to be purged. And that I would hunger and thirst to see the Lord Jesus be vindicated and to recreate heavens and the earth. And that, God, we would repent of all that we add to the mess, of the hell that we ourselves unleash. And, Father, for those that are far away from you, may they be drawn to the image of a banquet not out of fear, but out of desire to be a part of what's happening. So now, God, we respond to this. We orient ourselves to you. We take lips that have been unleashing hell now, and we ask you, God, that they would unleash praise. And minds that have been filled with all sorts of images, and now we pray that you'd fill our imaginations with images from the scriptures. And so, God, um, this thing we do called corporate worship, and pray that you would meet us and reorient us. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. Amen. Well, today's an exciting day. You guys can have a seat. Um, so, <laughs> okay, 
So we have a friend here, um, Micah. He was here a few, I think it was a few months ago, and he's an incredible artist, an amazing, brilliant poet. And um, I don't know if you guys know, it's Black History Month, and we're very excited about that. We want to, as a church, celebrate that. And so um, we wanted to have him come back and share. Um, so yeah, please please listen and, um, and enjoy, because he's amazing. So welcome, Micah Borne. According to ShakespeareOnline.com, the English language owes a great debt to Shakespeare. He invented over 1,700 of our common words by changing nouns into verbs, changing verbs into adjectives, adding prefixes and suffixes, connecting words never before used together, and devising words wholly original. If I could, I'd spit this in whatever mother tongue was ripped from our mother's lips. But the closest I got to that is hip-hop, is black talk, is improper, non-proper, unproper, uneducated, un-educated, unassimilated, me talk, we talk, our talk, make y'all wish y'all know I'm talking about talk, make y'all ask your black friend talk, make y'all run to urbandictionary.com talk, that one thing, that something that belongs to us, that us you tried to demonize, envy, copy, despise, that us you tried to categorize, stereotype, try to shame our broken English you wish you could understand, but you can't never get it because we stay fly, we stay fresh, we stay change, we stay everyday new way to say we never believed your lies, we never spoke your tongue, we been ineducated, uneducated, un-educated, unassimilated, and if you ever want to know what we talking about, maybe you need to unlearn a thing or two. Who says our vernacular ain't classical? Who says rap lyricists are any less than Shakespearean? Shakespeare, a man who turned nouns into verbs and invented 1,700 words. That's funny. When we break the rules, we're called ignorant. When we invent words, they're called slang. The way we talk is improper, non-proper, unproper, uneducated, unscratch-educated, unassimilated. We ain't never been dumb. We break English like chains. This is our native tongue. I, I went to college in Chicago, and uh, during those years, I got involved in a ministry that would go into um, juvenile detention centers. And we would, it was a temporary holding facility. It was kids between like 11 and 18 who had committed crimes and they were awaiting their trial. So they were usually there from a, a couple weeks to um, seven or eight months around the time frame. Um, and so we would go in and we would talk to them. We'd have Bible study with them, whatever they wanted to do, just hang out. And I went week after week uh, talking and connecting with these kids. And I noticed something. Um, the overwhelming majority of these kids were black. And it was curious to me because Chicago is a huge, multi-million person city. And I thought to myself, how is it in a city this big and this diverse with so many different cultures that the overwhelming majority of the teenage criminals are from one culture, are from my culture. Week after week, going in there and seeing faces that looked like mine was difficult. And I thought to myself, after a while, man, like, are black people just more sinful than other folk? How is this possible? And it really started messing with my head. And one particular week, I went in, and I got in a conversation with this young cat. And this dude was so mild, so kind. And you just think to yourself, like, is he, like, secretly crazy? You know, like, what did he do? Is he, like, going to murder me if I blink and look the wrong way? You know? Like, um, but, like, I, I just I, I couldn't understand, especially him. And so he says one day, he says, hey, Micah, you want to know why I got, uh, how I got in here? I say, yeah, man, if you want to share, I'd love to hear and he goes, well, I'm from the south side, and the deep south and the west side in Chicago are the most impoverished and predominantly black neighborhoods. So I'm from the south side. I, I never did drugs in my life. I never sold drugs in my life before. 
Shit. But I'm 14 years old. My mom, it's me, my mom, and my little sister. My mom got laid off her job, and she couldn't pay rent. And it was winter time in Chicago, negative degrees. And my landlord kept threatening to kick us out because she was always late on rent. And my little sister was crying every night because my mom couldn't afford to buy food, so we didn't have no dinner, and she was hungry. He said, you got to be 16 to get a job. Since I'm only 14, I couldn't get a, a, a real legit job. So even though I never did drugs before, I knew the, the homies on the block, they would sell drugs and make money. So I went to the drug dealer and I said, hey, man, can you teach me how to sell drugs? So I started selling drugs and I paid rent and I bought groceries for my family until I got busted by an undercover cop. He says, you know the worst part about being in here? I don't know if my mom and my sister are sleeping outside in the cold. I don't know if they have anything to eat and I can't do nothing about it. When I heard that, light bulbs started going off, you know? Because it's, no, it's not that black people are more sinful than anybody else, but we are, because of a long history, more often than other cultures, born into desperate situations and forced to make impossible decisions. In his 14-year-old mind, he was choosing between homeless and hungry in the winter in Chicago or sell drugs. Which would you choose, right? And I think for people looking from the outside in, who don't hear those stories, who don't have relationships or connections to black culture, it's real easy, especially for Christians, especially for a lot of white Christians I know, they take this very staunch stance on morality. Selling drugs is wrong. He broke the law. He deserves to go to jail. You did the crime, you pay the time. But when you actually talk to people and hear their stories, your heart ought to change. One of my favorite verses is Proverbs 6.30. God is the one who told us that stealing is wrong. And yet scripture says, do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger. Because there is a difference between someone who steals from greed and someone who steals out of desperation. So I would encourage you to really get to know, build relationships, listen to stories, and maybe the way you look at other people and other cultures, and particularly black culture, might shift. This poem is titled Stealing Bread. Do not make me the exception to your stereotype. Do not use my success as evidence to condemn my brother's lazy. This land's booby traps simply missed me. Don't dare you disrespect my kin. I am no greater or less than them. You will cause division between us no more. Our less fortunate will be loved, not blamed for making the rest of us look bad, and I refuse to despise a poor man for stealing bread. We are poor men stealing bread, and I suggest you not despise us, or you just might anger God. If you are not afraid, make your way to any metropolis, USA. Go to the poor side of town, the hood side of town, the ghetto side of town, and what do you see? Poverty is supposed to be colorblind, but it is so closely tied to blackness. Terms used for low economic status are now synonymous with a culture, a people. In American minds, black folks do not suffer from poverty. We are poverty. We are hood. We are ghetto. And we like it that way. Don't you hear how we rap about it? Remember how slaves used to sing about picking cotton? Oh, but slavery is done with. Just like segregation, this nation elected a black president. Anyone who doesn't succeed is just making bad decisions. Black on black crime, remember? Alcohol and substance abuse. Absent black fathers, too. If black people would just be better people, then we would be better. Right? Look me in the eye. You warn your children not to step foot in the neighborhoods that ours have no choice but to be raised in. Then play ignorant as if success has nothing to do with the situations we are born into. As if most of us just don't want it as much as most of you. Your average child will thrive while our exceptional might make it out alive. So look me in the eye and tell me you believe we chose this.
Tell me we're poor on purpose. Tell me you believe we like being hungry. Tell me we'd rather sell drugs than have a career. Tell me we deserve to go to jail. Tell me you believe we hate ourselves. Tell me we're lazy. Tell me we're ghetto. Look me in the eye. We are poor men stealing bread. And I suggest you not despise us. We do that. Remember, I grew up in uh, the great state of Ohio in a little village. 3,000 people. There was one black person in our school. And uh, Black History Month was always made fun of. Like, why don't we have White History Month? And uh, as I've gotten older, I've realized um, the error of that way of thinking. And what communion does. We're going to celebrate it in response to that. Communion is the anticipation of the every tongue and tribe and nation-ness of the new city. And the reason we do this is because God's hospitality extends not just to those who are like us, but far beyond those definitions. And so we practice. We have to practice here. Because turn on social media and we're divided. Turn on... Um, Turn on news, and it's just nothing but commentary and labels. There has to be a place in our world where people can come together in peace. And communion is that place. Why? Because none of us come earning, none of us come deserving, none of us come out of privilege. We come hungry, we come thirsty, realizing we're part of the cancer that the world needs purged from. And so this, this, this really matters. It's the redefining and the remembering who we are, of how good God is, and of how we're to view our neighbor. And so we're gonna open up the tables. We love our gluten-free sisters and brothers so much they have their own station over here. We open up the tables, people will look you in the eye and say, this is the body broken for you and this is the blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. We have these little prayer things, we didn't know how they'd go over until we got two and a half pages of prayer requests last week. Our poor prayer folks were busy. And some of the stuff you were sharing is just absolutely heartbreaking. And we're so sorry you have to walk in it. So this is a way we're together. If you want to donate financially, we have participation boxes around the room. That's another way people respond. But the most important thing we do is this table. This is why table fellowship matters, right? Because God's really not interested in the labels we carry in. So let me pray. Tables will be open. We'll respond together. Lord Jesus, we know that one of the things that will be cast outside of the city is the predisposition we have to just love those who are like us. And so, Father, we pray that you would do the work in us around the table to love our neighbor. God, that you would call out to us and remind us afresh of how little we deserve our space. And out of that realization, we'd make room willingly, joyfully, gladly for the others you've invited. War against us, Father, when we put up barriers that you yourself have torn down. Oppose us, Father, when we do this. And remind us as we come to the table how good and beautiful your heart is for us. We bless you, Lord. Amen. It's a tight ship, brothers and sisters, as we like to say around here. Oh, man, I feel like I could go to bed after that. Um, why don't you stand? Let's stand together.
So a uh, couple of things as you go. First of all, uh, Table Fellowships are going to be launching here in the next month. And so grab, there, is, uh, there are cards out there that will give you information about them, as well as you can RSVP, I think, next Sunday, because uh, we do have to cap them based on uh, the size of houses and so on. Um, secondly, I think Micah has some stuff out there, correct? Is that right? So we, we absolutely love him. Um, and, uh, and I think that's all we got. <laughs> it's been a full morning. Um, <laughs> oh, you guys are amazing. I, I cannot tell you, and I know this is a dumb thing to say, but I cannot tell you how much I enjoy and look forward to uh, gathering with you every week and uh, sharing the table together. And um, so bless you. Bless you for being a part of this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And may he, in these days, give you shalom. May he give you peace. Amen. Amen. Say hello to somebody as you leave. Goodbye. First Sunday without football. Today of sadness. Day of mourning. Day of Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.